0: Beethoven's so-called Kreutzer Sonata No. 9 was actually written for the fiery Afro-English violinist George Bridgetower and was originally dedicated to him and was premiered by him and Beethoven. Um, But then he and Beethoven had a falling out supposedly over a woman, and Beethoven rededicated the sonata to Kreutzer, Rudolf Kreutzer, the great French soloist who never ended up ever playing it. (laughs)
1: Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and this is part two of a conversation I had with violinist Rachel Barton Pine. She begins with a story of an unusual experience she had once while playing a very special violin. In
0: 1992, um, when I was uh, the second prize winner of the um, international Fritz Chrysler violin competition in Vienna. Um, the top three prize winners, we each had an opportunity to play on Chrysler's own Guarneri del Jesu. Now, Chrysler had given this instrument to the Library of Congress at the end of his life. It was thought that it was a generous gesture to his adopted country, but in fact, he owed some back taxes, and he owed those back taxes because of gambling debts, and, you know, it's a it's a fun little story. But in any case, this was the first time that the Library of Congress had let it leave the U.S. Um, since it came into their collection, so it was a great honor to get to play on this Chrysler instrument there in Vienna for the... Um, you know, as a winner of the Chrysler competition. And the piece that I happened to be playing, I had actually chosen it for its title. I mean, it was a great piece, as all of Chrysler's pieces are, but I was like, you know, I saw it listed in the catalog of his hundreds of works, and I said, I have to play this one. It's called The Viennese Rhapsodic Fantasietta. I thought with a title like that, it's got to be over the top, and indeed it was. But it was something that he had written at the end of his life. And of course, he had, like me, he had been through a series of instruments, first one and then another, until he found his. his soulmate, which was this last Guinari del Gesù. And this v- Viennese rhapsodic fantasietta being one of his later pieces, he had written it on the Guinari. And as I picked up that instrument and started playing that particular piece, it was like a ghost coming out of the F-holes. It's like Kreiser himself was, was playing the music. Everything that I had envisioned as being desirable for my tone colors and my sound for that particular work was right there in the instrument and it made me really think first of all you know teachers will talk about how they lend their instrument to their student for a week and it comes back with all of their bad habits you know this wood is an organic material and as we the player vibrate the wood it alters the wood. And so the fact that Chrysler had been the last violinist to have a long-term relationship with this instrument, and while it's played on occasionally for special performances at the Library of Congress, um, nobody has lived with this instrument as their daily companion um, for a long period of time, or for any period of time since Chrysler. You know, it lives at the library. library. And so, um, you know, so nobody's sound had kind of superimposed itself over Chrysler's but then it also made me wonder about the player-composer and that relationship and did this piece sound like Chrysler's voice because he had written it or was it that Chrysler sounded like himself because he played this instrument you know like how much does the in- instrument influence you and how much do you influence the instrument and all of that and now that I've lived for since 2002 with the Guinaria that I play I do think that probably if somebody else picked it up, they would say that sounds like Rachel um, because I've gotten so far inside it by this point. But also it's gotten into me. And so it sounds like Rachel. But does it sound like Rachel because Rachel sounds like it? Because living with it and hearing what it has to offer, it's not only able to give me everything that I come up with in my imagination, but it's leading me to places that I would have never imagined You know, it's guiding me and showing me things and altering who I am as a musician because of this relationship.
1: Here then is a vintage recording of Fritz Kreisler playing his violin. So give me a a kind of comparison between playing a piece of music that has already been composed and and you're having this relationship where you, you know, where do you stop and where does the instruments begin and your own efforts as a composer.
0: Well, now that's a whole other relationship because when you're playing a work by a composer, whether living or dead, you know, you and that composer are collaborating because, you know, I feel that you need to be true to that composer's vision, you know, who were they? What was their personality? If you can't meet them, if they're dead, you have to read about them. You have to talk to somebody who knew them, etc., and try to get as much into their head as you can so that you can capture their personality with the music. But if you try to completely supplement yourself, of course the performance is going to come off as inauthentic because you ultimately can't be somebody else. You have to be an actor, but you have to be you being that character. Right. It's like somebody, you know, it's like the world of acting. Somebody might be pretending to be, you know, a policeman and they're not a policeman in real life. They're pretending to be one, but they're they're themselves pretending to be one, which is going to be different than some other actor pretending to be a policeman. If you if you get what I'm driving at. So, you know, it's a question of I have to bring my own personality to the music, but also Try to be true to the composer at the same time, and the violin is part of that. Um, but ultimately, you know, the performer has to f- rely on on thought, and then thought has to be at the service of instinct. Uh, so your instinct is your final arbiter. You know, you might think that this makes logical sense, but if it doesn't feel right, then it's a no-go. You know, do all of your homework, all of your practice, all of your study, analyze the piece, read about the composer, read about the performance practice and musical aesthetics of the time, get to know your instrument, et cetera, et cetera. But go out on stage and just do what feels right, and you can't go wrong.
1: So that's when you're playing somebody else's music. Now when you're composing, is it a different Is the violin informing this process in any different way?
0: Well, I definitely think so, because it's all about personality. And so, you know, where I might choose to bring a phrase or a color is going to be based on what's going to sound good on my instrument, as well as, you know, what fits my particular playing. So um, the fact that my instrument has a really juicy G string or the fact that, you know, it can take a lot of very strong playing, um, you know, I'm going to. Be going in that direction more than an instrument that might not have those particular qualities. When I might, um, you know, play more with the ethereal side of the sound, etc. Um, so, do you ever yeah, think there, of your
1: ever think of your violin as having a name? There's several people I've thought of it. They, well, since they, it already
0: has a nickname, the Ex Basini Ex Soldat, I think that's already quite enough names. Uh, um, but my daughter, a, I have to tell you, her, she has named her violin Singy. And she named her bow Ringy, because Ringy wants to make a ringy sound and not a fuzzy sound or a scratchy sound. Because of course, if you're too far away from the bridge, closer to the fingerboard, it's going to be fuzzy. If you're too close to the vi- to the fi- to the bridge, it's going to be scratchy. So Ringy wants to be right in the middle of the string where Ringy can ring, and then Singy sings. And yeah, so she named her violin Singy. And, um, and how old is she? She's four. So my daughter started violin lessons when she was two and a half with a standard issue one thirty second size, which these days sounded quite decent. It wasn't a disgusting sound, even though it was so teeny tiny. Um, And she started lessons, and you know, little two year old, she was you know as careful as she could be at that age with her violin, which was moderately so. Um, And of course, I you know made sure she didn't accidentally drop it or something, or step on it or whatever a two year old might do. Um, But you know, she would set it down upside down sometimes accidentally, and all the kind of things you would expect. Then she um, got big and um, needed a 1-16th. So we went back to the shop and I'm assuming that she's going to be given a standard issue 116th size, you know factory made little whatever. Well, the shop owner goes in the back and gets out an antique handmade mid1800s 116th. He says it's been in his vault for a dozen years, but he knew that my daughter was coming in that day and got it all fixed up for her. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, she's still two. Like, I don't want to worry about us taking care of an antique. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is going to be stress. But we got home, and at first she was having a bit of angst because I was talking to her about how she had to be extra careful with it. But then she heard the sound. And she said, I love my new violin. Her name is Singy. And so she was very careful with Singy and just loved her. But then she got bigger again and she needed a one-eighth. And she said, I don't want to say goodbye to Singy. And I'm going, What am I going to do? This is going to be traumatic. How do I, like, tell my daughter she has to give this violin back and say goodbye to it? And, you know, it wasn't a question of owning it and hanging it on the wall as a souvenir of her babyhood because, you know, it belonged to this shop owner. And, you know, maybe it could be used by another child someday or whatever. So we go to the shop, and thank goodness he got it. So he takes Singy, and he brings her to the back, and he comes out. He said, we made Singy grow. She's bigger now. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. <laughs> so and, 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 Singy and, is still a part of my daughter's life, but now she's a one-eighth. Well, that's
1: very good. That's very good. <laughs> is there something about the instrument itself compared to other instruments? What is it about the violin? And, of course, there's the cello and the viola in this family. What is it about these instruments that you just think is – Unique.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, people always ask me, do you play any other instrument? And it would have been nice to have had the opportunity for a little bit of keyboard skills when I was a student. My parents certainly couldn't afford an upright, so I didn't have the chance. Um, But I was never drawn to play the piano as an instrument, you know, for repertoire or anything like that and um, guitar or just anything. Whatever I want to do musically. I can do on the violin because the d- violin can do anything. And, it, you know, I like the fact that unlike the cello most of the time who has to sit, you know, I can be on my feet standing and playing and it has the high notes and the low notes. And, um, of course, playing a del jesu, I do have that deep alto voice as well. Um, and, um, you know, you can play first violin in a string quartet or get into the inner voices and play second violin. It's so versatile and it's so, um, I don't know. I just love the violin. But that being said, I love all of what I think what it means to be a violinist is wider than just the violin. If you look historically, you know, violinists, um, the best violinists of the day in the 1700s played the viola d'amore, which is the 12 or 14 string cousin of the violin with an equal number of playing and resonating strings tuned to a chord bunch of different tunings depending on what key you were playing and it's a real brain twister but I've gotten up and running on the viola de mori and actually just recorded an album of all these eight concertos for that instrument Um, you know I play a six string flying V electric violin um, which I in a way, it's not a violin per se because you're not holding it with your head, you know, with your jawbone. Um, you know, because it's in an upside down Y shape, it straps onto the body, so it's great for playing with, you know, a heavy metal band because you can headbang while you go at it, you um, your head free, and you can shift to the end of the fingerboard without torquing your arm because there's no acoustic soundbox, aka the body of the violin. Um, I'm not one for all of those pedals and effects and stuff. I you know, love listening to people who get into all that, but that's not where I'm coming from artistically. But sometimes you just gotta be loud. But what's been fun about this instrument is it is tuned in fifths, so you have the C string of the viola going down, you know, after the four violin strings, and then the F string, which gets into the cello range, which is great for playing, you know, the doom metal riffs when you wanna really get down low with the with the bottom of the guitar range. So that's been a fun instrument. I play the pochette which is the dancing master's fiddle that you hold on the arm, and I play Renaissance violin on the arm for 1500s music. Um, I play Baroque violin, of course, which is, a Bar- which is a regular violin, but set up in its earlier fashion with the old fat short neck and the gut strings and the um, Baroque bow, which is curved outwards. So that's a whole different set of tone colors and articulations and expression. And I love doing the improvisation element of Baroque music and all of the dance styles from the different countries. And then I also play the medieval ancestor of the violin, which is the Rebek, basically anything that's parallel to the ground I'm interested in playing myself. I don't, so in other words, you won't find me playing a viola da gamba or an arhu or any of those things that are perpendicular like a cello. Um, but anything related to the violin I'm interested in because I love the violin so much I want to know all about it in the widest sense possible. So it's been interesting with each of these different kinds of violins or ancestors or of the violin or cousins of the violin as I've played these different members of the violin f- um, sort of family to figure out, you know, where does that instrument's voice begin and where does my voice end and how does it all fit together? So, you know, especially with the viola deamore at first I was playing on the viola deamore It took me a while to figure out who am I as a viola deamore player and where is my sound. And it's actually a different voice than my voice on the violin and like a different element of my personality and um, – you know, it's it's just been actually a very fascinating journey.
1: And I would think the, the having to adapt because of your performance schedule. So it's not like you can binge on one of these instruments for six months. You're doing one and right back to the other one and right back to the other one. So you've learned a kind of flexibility to be able to pick up very different kinds of instruments and go back to what you do on that instrument.
0: Absolutely. Now, maybe I would sound that much better on whatever it is, you know, the Renaissance violin or something, if I played it exclusively for a year or for 10 years, but that's never going to happen because my primary voice is as a modern violinist, meaning, you know, modern meaning, you know, the Tchaikovsky and Brahms violin concertos on my modernized Guarneri del Gesù. You know, that's who I am playing the standard repertoire, but I would never be happy doing nothing but that, you know, you've got to go out for Indian or Thai or whatever every (laughs) once in a while, not just have the same old spaghetti for dinner every night, even though that's the best food possible.
1: So tell me about this uh, journey you took trying to explore uh, African-American composers on the violin.
0: Actually, we're so used to translating black as African-American, but when it comes to classical music... um, African descended would be perhaps a better term because composers of African descent come from Africa these days. Many, many wonderful voices coming out of a whole variety of different countries. Um, They come from Europe going back all the way to the time of Mozart. They come from Latin America going back to the Baroque and even before. Um, and, of course, the Caribbean, North America. Um, So there's, you know, of course, many, many wonderful African-American composers, but so many from elsewhere. And actually, my album of music by black composers from the the 18th and 19th centuries, those works from the 1700s and 1800s, none of them were by African-American composers. They were Afro-Caribbean and Afro-European. And so, but it is important to bring that history to light Of course, we're talking right now in February of 2016 when it happens to be Black History Month. But for me in the classical music world, every month is Black History Month because this is such a wonderful slice of the repertoire and we all are missing something if it's forgotten or disregarded. But it's especially important for minority students to realize that classical music is part of their heritage, too, so that they don't feel like they're playing somebody else's music and have that barrier to full participation and to support from their family and friends thinking that, oh, you're doing somebody else's music, which is not true. And so I love to tell the stories about the all-black orchestras of the 1800s in America, which were sort of the equivalent of the Negro Baseball Leagues. The fact that Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass were both... Um, enthusiastic amateur violinists um, you know, so many of these important stories the violin now being used in hip hop and classical music sampling in many of those hip hop and R&B songs uh, you start to tell these stories, and it really makes a difference in the lives of kids, and of course, bringing them the repertoire. So my foundation is doing a project called MBC, Music by Black Composers, in collaboration with the University of Michigan, researching a lot of these works, which um, because of um, you know historical circumstances, very often are out of print or exist in manuscript only and are hard to your hands on and trying to you know get these things out there so that they can be used um, by students of every age. Can you
1: take me to the moment when suddenly you decide this was You got on this particular track.
0: Actually, it wasn't a moment. I was very, very lucky to grow up in Chicago for so many reasons. Um, But we have a facility called the Center for Black Music Research. Um, They're not doing what my foundation is doing. Their angle is a bit different. They're really more about the ivory tower, you know, academia. Um, But they're doing wonderful primary research to dig up these composers and to look at all kinds of different musics of the African diaspora. And so... Different chamber music series, playing in the Civic Orchestra of Chicago. Um, growing up as a as a teenager, um, you know, we peppered in music by various Black composers, historic and living, into various concerts. And I didn't realize that this wasn't the norm till I was a bit older, and then thought, well, but this should be the norm, and Chicago should not be the exception. Um, but I was lucky to be exposed to this um, just by where I happened to be living.
1: And did you ever come across a story about? a black uh, musician or composer, violinist, uh, and a relationship that that person had with their violin or how they got their violin? Did you ever come across kind of an unusual story in that regard?
0: I don't, but I'll be on the lookout. I'll definitely let you know if I do. Um, You know, Jose White, for example, um, the Afro-Cuban violinist who was sponsored by Gottschalk to go to study at the University of Paris, ended his career teaching there, was actually the the teacher of George Inescu, who was the teacher of Menuhin. Um, But um, Jose White was a touring soloist in the era of Vinyowski, Vuitton, and Sarasate, and was compared favorably to those other virtuosos throughout his career. And you know he must have played a fine instrument. And I have to identify which one it was and how he got it. And there's still more work to be done. We've been really focusing at this point on the basics of the biographies, but also the repertoire and the childhoods of the composers, which I think is so interesting for younger musicians. Um, But, you know, fun stories like the fact that Beethoven's so-called Kreutzer Sonata No. 9 was actually written for the fiery Afro-English violinist George Bridgetower and was originally dedicated to him and was premiered by him and Beethoven. Um, But then he and Beethoven had a falling out supposedly over a woman, and Beethoven... Rededicated the sonata to Kreutzer, Rudolf Kreutzer, the great French soloist who never ended up ever playing it. So it's kind of ironic that, I mean, Kreutzer wrote some etudes that we remember in the violin world, but he wouldn't be remembered by the wider music community for his own compositions or his long gone career. He's remembered because of the famous Kreutzer Sonata, which really ought to be the Bridge Tower Sonata and originally was the Bridge Tower Sonata. So reading about Bridge Towers playing and his collaboration with Beethoven. It's just fascinating stuff.
1: That is, and I think I've heard something about that story, and again, without the great detail. And I just spent 12 years uh, researching, uh, well, trying to find the family of an African-American woman who took care of me from the time I was born until I was five. And my father died of polio when I was one, Mm -hmm. and my mother was pregnant, and she lost the child when when my brother was born. Four months later, he only lived for Uh, 48 hours. So it was a tremendous tragedy. And yet this 60-year-old African-American woman named Helen, who I was enormously fond of, was there in the house and doing everything and taking care of my brother and I. And she left when I was five. And recently, I suddenly began to really feel I had to find her and thank her for everything she did for our family, and particularly because I had become exposed to a lot of the new research and brain development, and uh, there really is a case to be made that these caregivers have a much more profound role in the, the mm-hmm. physical uh, structure of the brain than we ever knew. Well, when I was 20 years old, I decided to become this hippie back to the land guy, and I moved to West Virginia by this farm, and I totally fell in love with Appalachian uh, fiddle music and ballads and and the banjo and the fiddle. And simplistically stated, it's pretty much a kind of Scotch-Irish and Irish mm-hmm. musical tradition with some German.
0: Well, actually, I mean, they say that the two main roots of the American traditional fiddle music is are the music of the New World, particularly from the British Isles, combined with the music um, brought over from Africa that African-Americans, you know, who were given the Western violin to play um, on the plantations, you know, for the entertainment of you know, the plantation owners would then play their own African music on this Western instrument. And that was, you know, the blues that became combined with the Celtic to make the appellation and et cetera. And um, there were, of course, the bowed stringed instruments um, held on the arm from West Africa, like the Gauche, which I've had the opportunity to play myself in Ghana. And so it's, you know, when you go back far enough in history, you know, the old great American fiddlers were all African-American.
1: Well, We mentioned that you like to play the Scottish music and I spent a year in Scotland um, after I had developed this interest in the uh, Appalachian fiddling and been playing for a couple of years, got to go to Scotland and it sometimes would be the same fiddle tune and very, very different. It would be very square and lovely tune, but it wasn't the tune that I knew from the mountains of Appalachia, which was this particular love I had. And so I talked to this uh, well-known brain specialist, Dan Siegel, when I was doing this research on this book and, well, this looking for Helen's family. And I said, is it possible I would have sought out music that represented the kind of two tonal qualities of the voices that were around me? Because I had this memory of her singing to me, but I wasn't sure of that. And he got very excited. He said, according to his research, he said, that would be exactly what you would do. And this, this music is a kind of marriage of these two things you would have known from the moment you were born. Because I grew up in a very Irish family with a lot of singing and a lot of Irish, mm-hmm. you know, joking and language. And then had this woman who was taking care of me from the moment I was
0: born. Interesting.
1: And uh, so I just think that's kind of interesting. Well,
0: Speaking of taking care of children, um, I only have till 630 to be able to practice violin with my daughter. Or I won't get to do it today because I have a master class and then I have another interview. And by that point, it's two hours later in Chicago, so she'll be asleep. So if there's last questions that you want to ask me and then I... No,
1: just say this. I'm fine and we've gone over the time. If there's anything you want to say, just think of this for a moment as an oral history that'll be somewhere down the road 50 years from now. Anything you want to say about what's happening right now with the violin
0: or... Well, one thing I, t- I talked about playing different kinds of violins and so forth. One thing I love doing with my primary instrument, the 1742 modernized Guarneri del Jesu, is using different bows on it for different purposes. I have, of course, my main stick, a beautiful Dominique Picot, which works for all of the great romantic concertos or any 20th or 21st century music I might be playing. But when I play, Classical period music, if it's not with a big orchestra, like a Mozart sonata with piano or the Paganini Caprices by myself, I have an early tour to what we call a transitional bow, which is lighter and springier, but with the hatchet head, which I use for that purpose. Um, I can actually use that same bow with my Baroque violin if I'm playing period instrument classical period music, but it works great on the modernized violin to get a little bit closer to some of those colors and then for Baroque music on my modern violin, even with a modern orchestra you know, or just playing solo Bach. Um, I use a Baroque bow as well. A different Baroque bow, a little heavier than the Baroque, the particular Baroque bow that I use with my gut string instruments. Um, But it works out really nicely to be able to just have, um, you know, a different part of the palette from the same instrument, depending on what bow you're using.
1: That's great. Thank you. We've kept you a long Um, time you know i'm just seeing like you know i mean the news last night is we got we got russia we have the syrians uh immigration issues we have global warming and yet people are playing music and they're they're trying to access some source of joy in the world
0: yeah. well you know playing the violin and sharing the music of the violin with people you know i think it brings us together and it connects us with the divine in a way that goes beyond words. And, you know, we need that in our lives. You know, we need to be able to touch something greater than ourselves because that gives us hope and that gives us motivation. And music is also, you know, the universal language that brings people together across barriers or boundaries of You know, race and ethnicity and class and country of origin and all of those other kinds of things. And so, um, music is, you know, so important for humanity, and there's no slice of humanity that doesn't have a musical language indigenous to it. But classical is something special that goes across all cultures and really is the highest form of expression of what humanity is capable of. And so, I just feel so privileged um, to be able to do this with my life, and, um, and it's just a really fun adventure.
1: Perfect. Thank you. We end with Ms. Pine performing a short section of the Allegro Movement of the Violin Concerto in A Major by the French composer Chevalier de Saint-Georges, the Guadalupe-born son of a wealthy planter and his African slave, Nanan. He fought on the side of the Republic as a colonel in the first all-black regiment in Europe during the French Revolution, but today he is best remembered as the first classical composer of African ancestry. Thank you for listening to Rosin' the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin' the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin' the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org.